Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Brian Barron joined the Indians, the Cleveland Indians, in January of 2014 as Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing. Prior to his time with the Indians, Barron spent 24 years at Procter & Gamble. During his tenure at P&G, he had opportunity to leave multifunctional business teams across over a dozen of P&G's billion-dollar brands, as well as lead customer business development teams such as Walmart and Kroger. Barron graduated from Princeton University in 1989, where he spent four years playing football with Mark Shapiro as a teammate. On graduation, he served as a tank commander in the U.S. Army. Brian now oversees the entire business operation for the Cleveland Indians and has been a catalyst for strong growth and sustainability of the brand. So, Brian, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, you and I are about the same age. I think I'm a year older than you. I guess I graduated in 88. Um, so, same era. How did you, um, I guess, was P&G where you started right out of college? Yes. Started at Procter & Gamble in the summer of 1989 in Philadelphia. That's really cool. I, that was, um, I think Procter & Gamble was probably the brand that I most wanted to work with graduating university. I ended up, I was, was running my own business called College Pro Painters at the time. And I, I ended up going full-time with the head office instead of going in with P&G. And I'd always been enamored with that company. So I'm, I, I want to hear your story. What was it like? What did you learn? What, do you, what did you kind of take with you? Because that was probably, I think in its day, maybe one of four or five of the best companies on the planet to work for, for business skills. Sure. It was uh, tremendous experience and I really enjoyed my, my time with Procter & Gamble. It's interesting because P&G has a great reputation for training and developing leaders. And a lot of that is a combination of formal training curriculum within Procter & Gamble. And then you learn quite a bit on the job. Uh, so over the course of my 24 years, had an opportunity to almost be an entrepreneur and yeah. start over several times through the course of my time with P&G. So for me, you know, there were a couple of things that I found with a lot of universal transferability to Major League Baseball. At P&G, three big buckets of business acumen, work process, uh, and people development. And when I say business acumen, it's really, what is your strategy? What are you trying to get done? From a work process standpoint, it's much more, how do you go about doing that? And on the people front, uh, P&G was notorious for training and developing and promoting from within. So it was incumbent upon leadership to develop the people around them. And in many instances, make, make sure you're developing people that are better than you so you can continually learn from them as you're looking for ways to grow the business profitably. And, and is it true that the, um, the only way you can actually get into a senior role at P&G is to have come from within, like they don't hire from the outside? Very rarely. So through acquisitions, uh, there, there were folks that came in at more senior levels, but that has generally been the way that P&G has gone about things, which is promote from within. Hmm. Pretty amazing. So if you think back then to the leadership development and developing people, what would maybe be in the, the top two or three leadership skills that you learned there that you would carry with you today? I think from at the top of the list would be ensuring that you put people in a position to be successful. Um, one of the things I learned over the years at P&G 
from other leaders and then found myself in a position to do with folks within the organization, you never quite feel like you're ready for that next role. You're, you're preparing, you may be 80% of the way there, and the company had a tendency to, to pull you, to stretch you, and do it in a pretty responsible way. Um, so as you turned as a senior leader to develop those around you, oftentimes you would do the same thing. You would promote people, uh, move people along where they may not quite feel like they're ready to get into that role, but you put them in there. They, they have the raw skills, knowledge, and experience to be, to be an effective leader. And you kind of give them that, that pull or that push over the edge to make sure that they do that. So that would be at the top of the list. I think, you know, one of the things that was really great about P&G was uh, a lot of the learning was codified. A lot of emphasis on writing things down. Uh, certain parts of the world, certain pockets of the business, um, there may be a tendency at times, and I certainly found within Major League Baseball, uh, a handshake and a pat on the back, and we'll work through this together. Um, business is a culture of written word. And one of the things that I learned over the years at Procter & Gamble was the importance of capturing things in writing, uh, constantly ensuring clear expectations, particularly when it came to major decisions, by having things codified or written down. Um, third thing and final thing was, uh, from a work process standpoint, the best process is always the right one. The next best one is the wrong one. And the worst thing you can have is not having a process. And as, as I came into uh, certainly the business side of, of Major League Baseball, we had a lot of uh, institutional knowledge, a lot of things that were in people's heads. Sure, that sure. We to get out of people's heads and down onto paper so we could begin to learn and ensure that process is the best one and where we found it may not be the best one, replace it with something that we would codify right down. And then once we had a process, you could always look for ways to improve upon it. Interesting. When you talk about the, uh, the codification of, of systems, um, is that how you trained people as well then? Was it to go through some kind of standard system and train them? How did you know that people at P&G were, were trained? How do you know that they were kind of up to speed on a skill? Typically at P&G, you had some, some macro work processes that were pretty standard within a region or in some instances across the world. Uh, you know, for example, the innovation process at Procter & Gamble was a standard process across the world. The execution of that may look and feel slightly differently in one region versus another, but the work process itself was consistent. Hmm. Lots of acronyms. So, you know, as you would work your way through a process, you'd make sure you were talking about the same thing. And it was a great way to create common knowledge. As I got to the Indians, you know, one of the big pieces of learning for me was assess, just learn, listen and learn from folks and try and pull out of the organization. What's our process for doing a specific task? I would spend a lot of time with the individuals at, at all levels within the organization trying to learn from them. I would take lots of notes and oftentimes find if we were working on a process and, and I talked to a half a dozen people, there may be five steps in the process and each one of them had four similar steps tendency was to focus on the one thing that they did as an individual that was a little bit different than others. Mm -hmm. And the learning for us over time was drive that inconsistency or that variance out of the process, find the best process and teach and train the organization to follow that religiously. Yeah. I used to say 
when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, franchisees always wanted to know the next thing. And I said, trust me, as soon as we know the next best system, you'll know. Because if it's better than anything that's documented today, we're going to tell all of you. But until then, just do what's in the manual, right? Yes, exactly. What was it like to leave a culture after 24 years? I think you said you're at P&G and then to move over to the Cleveland Indians. How hard was it to, um, to make that transition for you? And how did you make that transition? So it's interesting. I, I had an opportunity uh, almost by coincidence. Mark Shapiro, who was here with the Indians at the time and in, in the role as the president overseeing business and baseball, was a college football classmate and, and teammate of mine. Back in 2010, Mark was about to assume responsibility for the business operation in addition to his responsibilities for baseball. He ended up at a, at a game with a vice chairman from Procter & Gamble for whom I happened to be reporting at the time. And as an outcome of their discussion, Mark was an avid learner, always looking for better ways, innovative ways to, to do things. And as he was assuming responsibility for the business operations, he had read and and learned that Procter & Gamble had a pretty good reputation for brand building. So he wanted to partner with P&G and the vice chairman at the time, a gentleman by the name of Rob Steele, agreed with him. P&G signed a bilateral confidentiality agreement and I was assigned as a leader uh, to work closely with the Indians and share best practices back and forth. Procter & Gamble was very interested in fast cycle time decision making. Um, in baseball operations in particular, sure. there's a ton of data and information. There are more, more statistics than you can you know, shake a stick at. Um, you have to be able to synthesize a lot of data and information and make decisions very quickly on the player personnel front. PNG wanted to learn those things from the Indians. Mm-hmm. Conversely, what the Indians were looking for from PNG was how do you approach uh, running a business? How do you approach setting strategy? thinking through work processes, getting clear set of metrics and the development of people to execute against those priorities. How, how long did you and, um, and P&G or P&G and Cleveland Indians, how long did they work together like that? So we did that for uh, almost four years. So wow. by the time I came here in January of 2014, I, didn't, I had had an opportunity along with a handful of other uh, leaders at Procter & Gamble to work with Indian senior leadership. Wow. Got a chance to better assess what the culture was like, what the Indians were trying to get done. Um, many of the challenges that you face in a, in a smaller market in Major League Baseball. Um, so I, I had a bit of a running start, if you will, and knew many of the challenges that we would face organizationally um, operating as a smaller market team in, in Major League Baseball. Wow. What a huge win for the Cleveland Indians to be able to bring you on board in that way as well. That transition for four years prior to even starting day one is really powerful. I had um, a, a great opportunity back in around 2003. I was building 1-800-GOT-JUNK here in Vancouver as the chief operating officer. And uh, we had the Vancouver Canucks who were doing amazing at the time and had a fantastic company culture as a team. And Mike Johnson, the assistant coach, and I were doing the same thing, very similar, but for about six months, um, where we were trying to learn about the sports culture inside of the Vancouver Canucks. And then they wanted to learn about some of the operational best practices of building a great culture and how to bring that into a sports team. It was kind of cool. I can't imagine four years must have been amazing. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. So culturally, how do you, um, how does the team culture differ inside of the head office from what's on the field or do they is it is it together walk us through that that's a great question it's uh it's much more similar 
from how we go about doing work here in Cleveland than different. And when I say that, um, there's a culture of, of learning and growth within the Indians organization where as an individual and as, as a team, we're constantly looking for ways to learn from one another. One of the things that, that baseball is, as a sport certainly provides uh, is it's a very humbling game. Uh, you can have tremendous success in uh, one at bat and the next one, you know, tremendous failure. Uh, you can go through a streak where you're not having much success on the field um, or you are. Regardless, you've got to constantly find ways to hit the reset button and focus on what's out in front of you, learning from whatever your, your pitfalls may have been um, or your successes and constantly looking for ways to get better as an individual and a team and persevere through times of adversity. So yeah, you just touched on something that's really intriguing to me. So one of my kids um, is a, a great baseball player for a young kid. And, and I don't know, he was about 14 and we were talking about batting and he was really frustrated because his batting average was like 380 and he was number three out of about 100 kids. I'm like, kid, you're doing great. Like You're crushing it. <laughs> um, he's like, no, like 60% of the time I suck. And I'm like, yeah, but like the best in the like MLB, 60% of the time they suck. Like, how do you, how do you take that learning that you know, it's okay and to always strive. How do you take that into the business world? Because I often hear of companies that have really big goals and they're really pushing. And then, I don't know, they miss a quarter or they miss a number or they were too aggressive on a budget. I'm thinking of one client of mine that just raised a lot of money from a tier one investment bank, um, you know, well over a hundred million that they just raised. And the, the VC really pushed them to set a big goal and they missed that goal and the team was struggling culturally. How would you coach the team on, you're not saying it's okay to miss, but to, to get them reset for the, the, the next quarter, the next year, what would you do to kind of turn them around if you were to live coach them on that or, or do something? That's a great question. You know, one of the benefits of, of being a small family-owned business, um, which, is, which is what a, a major league baseball team, even in the large markets, relatively speaking, you know, coming from a place like Procter & Gamble where the company was divesting brands that were less than a half a billion dollars in net outside sales. Um, for the most part, baseball teams are, are small businesses. They happen to have big footprints in local marketplaces. Um, but virtually every team with maybe the exception of the Toronto Blue Jays who are owned by a publicly traded company, they're, they're owned and operated by um, privately held owners. And you're not really, subject to those quarterly earnings like you are in a publicly traded company. Mm. One of the positive things about not being subject to quarterly earnings is you're not really as worried about, we've got we've to score some runs or put some points on the board very quickly in order to show progress next quarter, or there will be a material impact on, on our stock price, our market capitalization. Um, the flip side of that is you want to bring the operational discipline to an organization to be very focused against a clear set of objectives, goals, priorities, and, and metrics to track your progress along the way. So you can bring a lot of the positive attributes that come from uh, being accountable organizationally. Whether you liked it or not, you would walk out of uh, you know, any office at Procter & Gamble, you'd see a stock ticker out in front of sure. you. You had a very public scorecard uh, in a way by which you could benchmark how well you were doing versus your competitors bringing some of those things organizationally into uh, our business operations has been very helpful for us the last couple of years as far as setting very clear 
objectives and goals that go with those objectives, plans to deliver against those goals, and then metrics to track our progress along the way. So I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about that company culture as well and just understand how you're developing it and what you're going to be turning it into or, or evolving it. Um, and you mentioned, but first you mentioned the Blue Jays. So it's been 25 years since they won the second uh, World Series. Do we have a shot this year? <laughs> Listen, I would never count the Blue Jays out. Any, any big market team, especially knowing the leadership that they have up there. <laughs> it was funny. I was... I was actually, my dad had four tickets for that World Series Game 7, and I turned them down to be at a company dinner for one or for a college pro painters. And the CEO said something about the game. We were watching it on TV, and, and I said, I had tickets. I turned them down. He goes, you're an idiot. You should be there. I'm like, dude, if I'd gone to the game, you would have told me I was an idiot for being in the game. Like, I can't win right now. This is horrible. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then they won. Um, okay, so talk about that culture and, and how hard was it to go from, I guess you had, again, the running start of the four years, but how hard was it to go from that big corporate environment into the family business? And, and what, would you, what would you kind of suggest to people if they're doing that or making that leap? Or It was because I had a little bit of a running start, you know, a couple of years to learn and listen to the leadership, uh, the ownership of the Indians. I had an opportunity to figure out, do, do some of the same values and, and operating principles apply within the Cleveland Indians Baseball Club as, as those that I had kind of grown up with, with Procter and & Gamble? And, and the answer was yes. Um, the, the beauty of being inside a small organization is, um, you know, we focus a lot on controlling the controllables. Uh, I, I'm a big believer, you can't really dial up a culture. You can't order an organization to believe certain things. It's either going to be innate and it's going to come from within, uh, within the organization by having a very clear set of priorities and a way by which you go about doing your work from which a culture will naturally start to evolve. Mm. Uh, you know, for, for us in Cleveland, um, you know, there's the embracing the reality of a marketplace within which you're operating. Um, again, it's not trying to make excuses, uh, handicap yourself but it's making sure you understand exactly what the marketplace is within which you're trying to compete yeah. and how you stack up. So coming up here a few years ago, I, I worked with a handful of, of our leaders to better understand what I call the, the broader business uh, socioeconomic environment. Um, there are a couple of things that they kind of stood out. Cleveland is, is one of 20 major league baseball markets that have NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball teams, you know, the, the big three, if you will. Wow. Of those 20, Cleveland is the smallest. Um, it's highly likely for the next 25, 30 years, Cleveland will continue to be the smallest of those that house Major League Baseball, NFL, and NBA franchises. Cleveland's the only city in Major League Baseball that's in the bottom four of three key socioeconomic factors. Sure. Household population, um, employment or rather unemployment um, and income. Yeah. So as, as you look at trying to run any type of a local business, if you look at those mechanical levers that are going to drive local revenue, you know, how many people do you have uh, with how much disposable income and, and how many occasions do you have for them to spend on your product or service? Um, for the Indians back in 2014, just trying to assess the reality of the current state uh, there were three business metrics in Major League Baseball, paid attendance, revenue, and if you took your revenue and divided it by your paid attendance, a, a dollar per cap, if you will, a, a 
an in-process measure. Cleveland was in the bottom three um, of the bottom three in Major League Baseball. So of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball, that was the reality of, of the marketplace at the time. Yeah. One of the things we try to do is say, what, what would be a stretching but realistic uh, objective for us as, as a business team? And we landed on getting to the middle of the pack in Major League Baseball. Um, and we, we track, the league does a nice job of grouping you in logical clusters um, of similar size markets. So there are seven markets um, that the Indians are part of a, a benchmarking team. Uh, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Kansas City, Pittsburgh, Tampa Bay, um, and Milwaukee. So Cleveland being the seventh. Uh, a lot of markets that are similar from a population uh, and income standpoint and employment standpoint. So as we set the objective of get to the middle and lead our peer group, we put a very specific quantitative number up against that. We want to be 15th in Major League Baseball on those metrics, paid attendance, revenue, dollar per cap uh, in five years. We want to lead our peer group in five years. Um, why five years? Uh, better than five months, you have to go through a, a season. Um, and it, it afforded an opportunity to put something out there that was not so far out on the horizon that it wasn't relevant, sure. but it was far enough away that it that enabled you to get a little bit of space to start to put plans in place to work very specifically against those objectives and goals. And that's, that's something we've been trying to do for the last couple of years. Who sets those goals when you're setting them as an organization? Is it is it leadership top down or is it leadership team making them together? How do you guys go about setting goals? We go about it uh, from both top down and and bottom up. So we'll sit with with ownership and with our our baseball operations team to try and figure out what type of revenue would we need to be generating to have a team payroll uh, in a certain range. And to the extent team payrolls um, are no guarantee, but there's a pretty strong correlation between team payroll and your ability to win baseball games. Um, we, we will take a combination of, I'll say, top-down from ownership and baseball operations leadership, and then bottom-up, working with each one of the revenue-generating product segments, um, and then looking at our single largest variable expense is actually staffing a ballpark for 81 home games a year. We'll try and look at those things to build what we call a, a local uh, controllable revenue and margin glide path over time. And to the extent we can open up operating margin and flexibility for our ownership and our baseball operations team, the intent from a productivity standpoint would be take any of those, the, the operating margin expansion and reinvest it into the most competitive baseball team that you can possibly field. Interesting. So that, that story that we've all heard is true then, that it really is up to the payroll of the team. If you can't pay it, you're just not going to get there. It's, it's very challenging because there's no hard salary cap in Major League Baseball. Um, you can get tremendous disparity. So, for example, the disparity between, let's say, the bottom three teams in Major League Baseball had a, had a team payroll around $80 million last year. The Boston Red Sox up towards at the top of Major League Baseball. The gap in baseball between the Red Sox and the bottom three is about 20% bigger than the salary cap in the NBA. Um, so it's just in the NBA and the NFL, it's not better or worse, but there's a tendency to talk about the gap to the cap. You know, how, where is the team's current uh, team payroll? What kind of a gap do they have to get to the salary cap? 
you don't really have those discussions in, in Major League Baseball. You've got such wide variance between um, lower team payrolls and, and big market team payrolls. Uh, there is a revenue sharing model. It, it creates a different set of conditions within which you need to operate. Somebody asked me once about culture and they were just saying, does everybody have to be the same inside of a company culture? So the, the curiosity I would have in the sport business is, does everyone have to be a fan of baseball? Like, does everyone who works for the Cleveland Indians have to love baseball? Is that part of core of what you do? Or are there anybody who worked there that's like, yeah, I'm not so much of a baseball fan, but I happen to love finance or... You know, you, you don't really have to love baseball. I, I do think that, uh, you know, two attributes that we look for consistently, both across our, our baseball operations and our business operations is we look for people that want to learn and grow as, as individuals. And then we look for people who put the team in front of themselves. Um, so very collaborative people. We have a very methodical interviewing process where we'll try and tease out um, the ability to work in teams and to collaborate um, and, and if given a choice, w- would you have a tendency to put yourself ahead of a team or is the team's goal more important than the individual goal? That's great. Yeah, I've been trying to get people to understand that even at the leadership team level that the leadership team's most important team is the leadership team. And then their functional area that they run second is their secondary team. It's like the, you know, you've got your offensive team or defensive team or you've got your pitching staff, but they're, you've got that one team, right? Yes. Um, interesting. You talked about the um, the learning culture. We were talking at, at one of the COO Alliance events the other day, and one of the COOs that was there said, "We were talking about about how the leader's job is to grow people, and we really got to have that growth oriented mindset of always growing our team and growing our team and growing our team, and always looking for ways to grow them." And somebody put their hand up and said, "Well, how about just hiring people that like to grow on their own? Wouldn't that make it easier?" And I was like, "Oh, yeah. Would it ever?" Right. And it sounds like you guys have already identified that as well. Is that walk us through how you identify people that are already into learning and like to learn and, and what that means, I guess, to the company? You know, some of the things that we try and do in the interview process to tease out uh, attributes that are important to us uh, t- took a little bit of page out of some of the learning over the years with Procter and Gamble and I'll say Indianized it, uh, made it relevant to what we're trying to get done here. We'll look for um, a combination of, you know, describe an instance where you may have uh, actually failed at a specific task. You know, what was that task? What were you trying to get done? Uh, What happened? And depending upon how you would define the yardsticks of success, why did you come up short? Uh, And importantly, what did you learn from that? Oftentimes, it's, it's very easy to talk about a success. When you talk about failure, it's, it's a little bit more challenging to talk about it and to be self-aware enough to admit where you personally may have fallen short um, within a specific task. The, the, the great thing about the question is, at the end of it, um, sometimes we like to ask, that's a terrific example, can you give me another one? And, and it's actually less important that you have another example. It's more important that you actually have a response. Sure. Uh, you know, successes are, are tend to be a little easier to talk about versus failures. And that humility is something that, that we look for. We try not to repeat mistakes, um, but we're very open and understand that we're going to make them, especially yeah. trying to learn as an organization. Those right. that can identify those attributes tend to do a little bit better. 
Yeah, I like that you're noticing two things there. One is you're finding that they've actually been able to see the lessons from their failure, so they're learning from that. The second part is the introspection, that they're able to blame themselves for their own contribution to the problem, and they don't blame an external factor. Um, I had a CEO I was talking to years ago in Vancouver, Canada. It was right around 2009 as kind of the global recession was hitting and he was complaining that his restaurant wasn't busy and it was this global financial crisis. I'm like, dude, you have a 120 seat restaurant. Like get out of your office, get away from your desk and go tell people that you have great food here. Like this, the global financial crisis is not going to shut down your 120 seat restaurant. Right. Right. It's maybe look at the fact that you're, you're all frozen behind your desks. Um, you talked about Indianizing and, and I call it R&D, rip off and duplicate. You know, you take the best systems in the world and you R&D those. Where do you learn? Where are you continuing to grow? I mean, you've obviously been a, a, in a growth-oriented organization like, like P&G. Where do you continue to grow today? It's a combination. Um, for some of our, our senior leaders, um, very intentionally, and, and this really goes back to Mark Shapiro, uh, his right-hand person at the time, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Miller that he took with him to Toronto, um, they actively looked for people that had experience outside of the baseball industry and then brought them in. Um, at the time, it was a combination of where do we need uh, a different infusion of talent um, as well as where do we want to build that capability in the future. So we have a, a dozen folks in those functional areas of leadership on our business lead team. Um, over half of those folks have more experience outside of Major League Baseball than they have inside of Major League Baseball. Mm. So oftentimes we'll look at a dilemma or a problem and we get the benefit of several different points of view from different industries. And we can actually work through something on much faster cycle time. Here's something that we faced in concept uh, you know, in, in a retail environment uh, 10 years ago, here's how we approach that. And here's what ended up happening, what worked and what didn't work. Um, so we use a combination of that. And then we try and work with a handful of, of key partners uh, in and around the Cleveland marketplace. Key Bank is a, uh, is literally walking distance from progressive field where the Indians play. We have a terrific partnership um, where we help provide some training for some of their key leaders as part of their ongoing curriculum. And they actually also do the same thing with and for us. So we can expose our folks to how they go about doing some things. They're a, a very well-run regional bank within the United States. Um, and as, as we continue to learn, they're literally right in our backyard. We can take things and find our counterparts there, bounce ideas off of them, learn faster, Here's what we're faced with. We're thinking about attacking it this way. What are your thoughts and feedback? And we can bring that outside in by being very intentional and methodical in that process. That's really cool. I, um, I realized that I missed a question opportunity when you talked about that learning from failure. So um, what's something that you failed at? Maybe, I guess, even when you're at the Cleveland Indians, something that you dropped the ball on or screwed up or failed at, and then what did you learn from it? So I got a, I've got plenty of examples of things that, uh, <laughs> that, that I failed at with the Cleveland Indians. One, one thing that was uh, great learning for me, in particular in my first season here, um, you've been fortunate the Indians have been 500 or better uh, you know, since, since I've gotten here and for a few years prior to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but in 2014, uh, we were right around you know, a, a 500 team. Uh, we were not competing for the postseason or to win our, our division. So as you would start to see attendance uh, 
drop or as you had an initial plan, uh, here's what we think we're going to be able to do for a certain home standard series and our actuals were coming in well below that. Um, my tendency was to troubleshoot, uh, you know, what's the gap closing plan right now, short term, like in the next week, in the next month, what are we going to do to help close that gap? Uh, it's not that you can't do anything, but there really are two factors that uh, we talk about control what you can control, and these are not really controllables, um, weather and team performance. So, you know, team performance was okay. We were not contending to win our division and go into the postseason, um, but we also struggled with weather in my first year. Um, so when, when you get unusual weather patterns coming off of Lake Erie, uh, you may get rain in the suburbs, uh, but it's sunny downtown or it's uh, raining downtown and sunny in the suburbs, you, you can't really control the weather. And that, that has a, it does have an impact, particularly on single game attendance. Um, what's the weather out? And, and people's judgment of that is typically look out the window and what they see drives their short-term behavior set. So trying to uh, not troubleshoot that, build a plan and then stick to your plan for you know, single game uh, we typically have a promotional calendar where there are giveaway items and dollar hot dogs. And we try and do those on the weekends to make our bigger games naturally on the weekends, make them bigger versus, you know, shooting for a, a weeknight game and trying to figure out, you know, what could we do creatively on a Tuesday or Wednesday night, maybe at the end of the school year. Uh, the answer is not much because kids are still in school and it really doesn't matter uh, so much what you do in situations like that. So for me, it was a lot of learning that through that first year, the bias to action, uh, I think was a positive thing, but taking immediate action on some things, uh, taking a step back and, and, you know, being checked into the boards by some folks here in Cleveland saying, hold on, uh, you know, you'll learn as we go through this. It's not that we're not going to try and do some of those things, but in a limited resource environment, we can't pivot resource to go work on something like that this weekend. Um, so that was great learning for me. Yeah, it's interesting. that um, I wouldn't have even thought through that the way that you did or learned as well. I, I, my tendency would have been to have jumped on it right away and tried to fix it right away. And, but it is a longer term game that you're playing as well, right? I mean, it is a, yes. it's multi-year season. It's a multi-year business as well. And that's part of the culture. What have you, what have you tried to do with, um, and I mean, it's, I shouldn't say it's easy being in a culture where, the, where there's a winning team environment because it's still business. It's still hard. Even when we built 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we ranked as the number two company in Canada to work for, and it was still stressful every single day. So what's been hard for you on the culture side and on the people side of the business internally? That's a, an excellent question. I think one of the hardest things for us in, in the near term, um, we have had a lot of success the last couple of years. Um, the good news is, whether it's on or off the field, um, you will fall flat on your face more than once, um, and you have an opportunity to learn from that. Well, we haven't had the broad, significant rebuild uh, you know, in the last couple of years where you will have the, your product on the field is going to impact what's, what's happening, uh, certainly from a, a paid attendance standpoint. Staying focused on learning from lessons and when you're having some success, um, there's a tendency at times that, you know, well, let's not worry about that. You know, we still hit our number and there may have been factors that frankly were out of our control that enabled that. Um, at the top of that list would be 
strong team performance. Um, in 2016, uh, the Indians benefited from a combination of strong team performance and uh, pretty good weather once we got into the summer months in particular. And again, mm -hmm. you, you can't really control in the summer. You're going to have, you know, families have more time. Weekends uh, tend to, to see a significant increase in, in your crowds. Parents aren't worried about getting the children to bed uh, because you've got school or you have a game or a school activity. There tends to be a little bit more time to do things in the summer months. Um, and when you've got the tailwinds of tremendous, uh, you know, decent weather and strong team performance, they tend to cover up a lot of mistakes. We try and pull those things out, put a spotlight on them and learn from them whether the team's playing well or, or not playing well. I heard years ago that to build an amazing business, it has to be slightly more than a business and slightly less than a religion. It's got to be kind of in that zone of a cult. Um, and I think P&G was definitely a cult, right? In a good way. Yes, and, yes. Uh, you know, college pro painters, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Google, like the, these companies are cults. How, how have you taken that, you know, what, what part of, I guess, that culture do you bring into the Cleveland Indians with you? You know, the, one of the things that we stress a lot is the importance of being competitive. And, and we very intentionally choose the word compete versus win. Mm -hmm. uh, we choose it for a couple of reasons. To, to compete, it's really all about the preparation process that you go through to put yourself in a position to be hanging around at the end of whatever it is that you're, you're competing to try and accomplish. Whether that be trying to get a, a corporate partnership deal done, to you know, sell a, a large group, to close out a concessions deal, uh, or to win a baseball game. So competing is something we really emphasize and, and stress. It tends to resonate pretty well. Um, one of the interesting things that I've, I've seen and experienced the last couple of years is our, our workforce in general, it tends to skew much younger. Um, obviously, baseball players tend to be younger. So from an on-the-field perspective, you generally have a, a much younger workforce, if you will. Um, off the field, we tend to we tend to have younger people um, that want to get into sports, um, and organizationally, at a point in time, we tend to have younger, and then a handful of of older people. I'd be on the old end of the equation right now, and you're trying to find that balance in between. Um, so, talking about the need to be competitive, uh, to prepare yourself to compete to hang around, uh, to be in a position to possibly win something at the end uh, is something that resonates very, very much so with a younger workforce. It's, it's interesting <laughs> you said that. I just noticed the other day that I don't remember being at a company recently where the workforce wasn't younger. And I don't know whether the older baby boomers are all just retired already or whether they're all working for government, but it seems like the younger Gen X, Gen Y is still kind of dominating the workforce. It's strange. Yes. The, it was just strange to kind of feel that I'm, I'm like with you. I'm, I mean, we don't look old, but we're not, we're also not 24. Exactly. Uh, talk about, about Gen Y for a second. What's it like working with that Gen Y demographic? I mean, I think they get a little bit of a bad rap in that, um, you know, they're, I'm not going to get into what all the rumors are about them. I've got some preconceived notions. What do you, what do you notice with Gen Y? What's good about them? What, what do you find us uh, the struggle and, and how do you leverage the best of, of Gen Y? It, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I, I, my learning has been there are a couple of myths and, and a few realities. Uh, you know, here would be an example of what I would describe as a myth. 
uh, this is the trophy generation where you get a, a participation trophy. If you just show up, you know, we're going to pat you on the back and, you know, way to go. Um, my experience has been that this generation is every bit as competitive as generations that were in, in, in front of them, if you will. Um, a tendency for, you know, those of us in the 50 plus group uh, to talk about walking uphill to school barefoot with the wind in our face. And it was so much tougher back then. Uh, there, there are a lot of excellent, uh, tremendous stories about perseverance and overcoming adversity. It tends to, 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 to transcend generations. Yeah. Uh, so the first myth was, you know, for me, this concept of uh, this is the participation, give them a trophy and pat them on the back. Uh, not so much. This is a very highly competitive uh, group of people. They may show up a little bit differently. Um, some of them like to actually get some feedback along the way. And, and I do think that's another thing that's a little bit different perhaps with an older generation where we'll sit down once a month or once a quarter and we'll review your work plan and tell you whether you're doing well, you're on track or you're off track. Um, my morning with younger folks is they like feedback and they like it in real time. What am I doing well? Where can I improve? And it, that eliminates what I call surprises. Either, wow, I had no idea you thought that positively or I had no idea that, that you actually were not pleased with the work that was coming out of me or my team. And that's something that is, as leaders, we've tried to really drive home, which is you know, get in touch with your people. The best way to do that is meet with them one-on-one, -on -one, meet with them as a team, look for ways to, to get candid, transparent feedback so you can learn and grow as a leader and we can get better as a team. Um, the last thing I would say is, uh, you know, my, my learning over the years is diversity is, is a force multiplier. There's a tendency at times to think of diversity, um, you know, in more myopic ways, whether it's ethnicity or gender. Um, experience is something that, that comes with time. Um, it's, it's not our fault that we're older. So we, we, by default, will have more experience from lots of different situations. Your ability to share the learning, both the good and the bad, with others so that hopefully you don't repeat the same mistakes, but you can learn faster when you find yourself in a challenging situation is something that I found all generations are very interested in doing. Yeah. You, um, you mentioned something about, about the sharing and um, the diversity. And I want to ask you a question about that, but before I do, I, it was, I definitely thought that my walk home from grade school was much harder than it was. I went back and visited my old family house a few years ago and I saw the hill. I'm like, really? That was the hill I used to, like, I used to phone my mom to come and get me two blocks away. And yes, like, no wonder she said no to me. I mean, that was barely, it was barely uphill. It was like a 10% grade. I'm like, come on, it's uphill. <laughs> Um, so you, I wrote a book called meeting suck recently. And, and one of the things I covered in the book meeting suck was if you're going to have people come to a meeting, you need to actually get them to contribute and hear them out. So how do you get the quieter analytical and amiable people that are a part of, of all of our cultures? How do you get them to contribute? What do you do to get them to, um, to share their voice over sometimes the, the louder voices of the dominant expressives who are kind of speaking over everyone? It, it's hard, uh, but one of the things we try to do is encourage, um, you know, teamwork is an, it, it's a contact sport. You've got to be engaged and involved. Um, 
You want to avoid that fear-based calling on someone, pointing to them, hey, what do you think, Julie? What do you think, Andy? And, and pull it out of them. <clears throat> Try and create an environment where, before we move on, we'd be interested in hearing the point of view of a couple other folks in the room that may not have shared theirs up to this point, where it's, it's less, I'm looking for a dissenting or I'm looking for you know, something that's reinforcing. It's just, we're looking for participation. And over time, helping folks understand that we're gonna get better as a team when people do actively share. Um, even if it is, I don't need to repeat everything that person just said, I agree with it. That's fantastic. Um, it, it shows that you're listening, you're engaged, and you're, you're a part of the team in the process. I heard it. I think that's great. I heard a, a hilarious comment the other day, one that I wouldn't use in the business world, but it was that there's no dumb questions or there's no dumb comments. There's just dumb people with questions and comments. <laughs> like, no, you can't do yes. that. Yes. <laughs> um, let's go with a parting one. So if you were to give, you know, your, your 21 year old self starting out at P and G, um, some business advice that you wish you'd known at 21, that, that you'd only really listen to yourself. What would that one kind of big word of advice be that you could have given your earlier self that you now know to be true? Don't be afraid to take calculated risk. Um, and, and those are very intentional words. Uh, I didn't say don't be afraid to take chances. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that ch chances have a much wider, uh, if you will, you know, it's a bigger gamble. Calculated risk is a little bit different. You know, you're not just going to throw caution to the wind and go on a whim. Let's go this way or let's go that way. Um, but don't be afraid to think through something and take a shot at a different way of doing something or pressing on on something where we may not have the success that we had hoped up to this point, but let's not give up yet. Let's push through this a little bit more. Uh, and don't be afraid to take that calculated risk. The worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to fail and you're going to learn from that. The sooner you fail and learn, the faster you can probably put a plan in place to, to correct that. If you're too cautious, you're probably not going to accomplish anything of significance. That's awesome. Brian, Brian Barron, the president of the Cleveland Indians Baseball Club, thanks very much for sharing with us today on the Second in Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. Appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.